You're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast, a show devoted to board and card games on behalf of gamers worldwide. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. The Broken Meeple, Episode 18, The Euro Edition. Welcome to episode 18, a special podcast devoted entirely to Euro games. On today's episode, the first impressions are to be given for A Study in Emerald, a Euro-style game based on the Cthulhu Mythos. The discussion will, funny enough, be on Euro games and how do we actually define a Euro game in today's world. And then the top 10 is, oh, what a surprise, top 10 Euro games from my experience. I am your host, Luke Hector, and I just whacked off your gangster. Nothing personal. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of The Broken Meeple. Just a quick update on the blog and the YouTube channel. Yes, I know that content has been a little bit low on the last couple of weeks. I've been quite busy, not only just playing games, but also my social life has been quite active, particularly on the dating scene, because after all, I'm a gaming bachelor, and I'm still looking for the one at the end of the day, just like everybody else is. So it's, it's been a good couple of weeks, but content is now flowing back. I've recorded some more videos. I'm obviously doing this podcast now, and I'm gearing up for the UK Games Expo in two weeks' time. Cannot wait for that. I'm staying in the Hilton Hotel itself. I'm driving up there. I'm doing this by the book. I know there may be some cheaper ways of doing it, but I'm just splashing out and going all out on my first proper games convention. So hopefully in the next podcast, we'll report on my experiences from that. Now, today's episode is more in line with Euro games. Euro games are a major popular genre when it comes to the gaming community, and there's all sorts of ways that you can define a Euro game, and the discussion as to what defines a Euro game whenever one hits the table is always one of subjective debate, it has to be said. But it's it's a good one to discuss, and I'll be getting onto that later on, but essentially this episode will be devoted to Euro games entirely, um, I'm not going to do one that's like devoted to Ameritrash games because Ameritrash covers a whole wealth of games and it's probably not one that's going to feature as an actual episode. But for now, I'm going to get on with it. So starting off with the first impressions for A Study in Emerald. Studying Emerald is a game for two to five players based on the award-winning short story of the same name by Neil Gaiman. This is based in the, it's kind of like a mashup of Sherlock Holmes and H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos. In this game, it's, you have, there is a secret war being fought to free mankind from the servitude of the old ones. Now, you have two teams effectively, although the, lo- the loyalties are secret, so you don't necessarily know who is on your team. And one side is wanting to obviously repel the old ones and the other ones are loyal to the old ones and want to keep them in play. But when I say teams, you're not necessarily in teams. I'll get onto this later. It's a little bit complex. Now, there's various mechanisms in the game. Deck building forms probably the core of the game where you have a selection of cards that you can purchase from the board by bidding influence cubes on them. So effectively, it's an auction bidding game as well. Each player has a secret identity, whether you're fighting for the old ones or against them. And the additional twist is that 
other the performance of other players on your team can influence how whether you can win or not it's not enough to just simply have the most victory points out of everybody if you are on a team where somebody has done really badly and you still have the most victory points doesn't matter the rules stipulate that you cannot win if your team has the lowest player so it is quite nasty when that happens and from my experience it was even worse because uh i was absolutely caning it on victory points i was certain who was on my team and then when we flipped over the loyalties it turned out that one person who i didn't expect to be on my team was mainly because he got colorblind and didn't read where the victory points were for the allies he was getting so it's like hmm okay i lost by down to colorblindness bit of a downer but no biggie the game with five players i mean i played this with a full cache of five players and i do not recommend you play this with five players it really just takes too long. The downtime between turns, you've only got two actions to do on your turn, and that can be putting down influence cubes, getting money, uh, traveling around the board, uh, trying to assassinate other people's agents, that kind of thing. But even with two actions, there's a fair amount of thinking you do in this game, and some AP-prone players can just hold their game up like crazy. With five players, it's just too much, I think. I reckon this game would probably be quicker with three, definitely. Four, perhaps, but... With five, I was just in between turns. I've just boom, done my turn. All right, who's next? And then I go away, photograph some other games for the club, uh, talk to other people, see how they're getting along. I come back, and it's still on the guys after the turn of the guy after me. So it's just, it was far too much downtime for my liking. And by the end, I was just trying to race to end the game quick, just so that we could find out who won, and just so I could try something else. Because I was looking forward to playing this game, and well. I was a little disappointed with it. The deck building mechanic is really small. I mean, we're talking it might as well not even be in the game. You don't have like a massive deck of cards. You're just there with like probably about 10 to 15 by the time you've paid for some during the game. It's not exactly a proper deck building game. It's almost like tacked on really. And there were chances that you could assassinate other people's agents. And I thought, oh, cool, a little bit of combat net. But rarely is it worth doing because assassination is simply just playing a card that says you can assassinate someone and then playing sim you play cards from your hand and the symbols dictate whether you get money or assassinate or get more cubes. And in this case, you play the ones with bombs on to do assassinations. But you literally just play enough bombs depending on the city you're in and that's it. No dice rolling, no funky type of combat. It's just literally play the cards and he's dead. And then the next turn, if somebody else's agent is in there, they just simply play the same type of cards and you're dead. So it almost just goes, right, I kill one of yours because you're going to kill mine next turn. And it's just not that fun. It, just, it didn't find it that fun. It almost shouldn't have been in the game. You know, might as well have just taken it out. And some people might think that maybe this doesn't feature in a Euro episode, you know, a study in Emerald. But personally, I just felt the game was very Euro. The combat in this game is almost non-existent and almost not even worthwhile. The auction bidding is common in Euro games. Deck building, maybe not so much, but the deck building is so small in this game, it's just not really that much of a prominent thing in there. You're still getting victory points, and it's still effectively who can be the most efficient out of everyone, that kind of thing. So I suppose you could almost class this as hybrid, but personally, I just I think it still fits the cusp of a Euro game definition. But it just... I mean, despite the way the fact that I lost due to a colorblind issue, it really just didn't really take to me. I didn't. I was disappointed with this game. If I'm going to play a Cthulhu Mythos game, then I'm going to go back to Arkham Horror, 
Eldritch Horror, possibly even try out Elder Signs. I'd like to try that. But this one just wasn't fun for me. And it's kind of weird because a lot of people have been beefing this game up, but I just couldn't really get into it. The downtime was just so long. You know, three players, I might give this another try with three players. You know, see if it speeds up the game. But with that much downtime, it's just, you're not involved. Once your go is over, you have no presence anywhere in the game. So it's just, you sit there doing nothing. You might as well be playing another game with someone else. So it doesn't really work for me. That's The Study in Emerald by Martin Wallace, published by Treefrog Games. Published in 2013, so you can understand from my reactions why this would not make my top 10 of 2013 in a lifetime. And now on to our discussion topic for the day. It's on the definition of a Euro game. Now, this is a very subjective topic. Loads of people have differing ideas as to what constitutes a Euro game. And it's even more subjective when other people bring a game to the table and then they debate whether that one is a Euro game. Now, Euro games started off by being, funny enough, brought over from Europe, mainly Germany. Now, most people sort of thought that that means that any game that comes from Europe is a Euro game, but that's not necessarily the case. Not all Euro games are European, and to be honest, not even all of them are board games. They just tend to share a similar set of characteristics to define what a Euro game is. Now, examples of some major Euro games that are easily, without doubt, a Euro game. You've got Puerto Rico, Carcassonne, Power Grid, La Havre, Agricola, that sort of thing. Those are definitive Euro games in the genre. And the most prominent Euro designers, we're talking uh, Uwe Rosenberg does quite a few. Uh, Stefan Feld is a major Euro game designer now. Uh, Martin Wallace, uh, that I mentioned with Study in Emerald, he does a few. And even uh, Reiner Knizia, he's also another major Euro designer. But with Euro games, I mean, I would say that I prefer Ameritrash to Euro. Maybe Hybrid as well. Maybe Hybrid's a good mix of the two. But I still like Euro games. I've got several on my shelf. Just looking now, I've got Caverna, Terra Mystica, uh, Alien Frontiers, Nations, uh, Kingsburg, Seven Wonders, Spirium. Uh, trying to find some others. Citadels, I suppose you could class that as a Euro game. It's hard to tell on that one. Amerigo's on the shelf, Lords of Waterdeep. So there's quite a few Euro games on the shelf, and I do enjoy playing them. Maybe I don't necessarily have many of them in my collection, though, compared to other people, because the problem with Euro games is that they are for gamers. There's not many Euro games that are gateway games, at least not in my opinion. So you usually have a problem trying to teach this to new people who have never played games before because you need to find something a little bit more close to the home, maybe something a bit more, maybe cooperatives, that kind of thing, in order to bring them in. Now, with Euro games in general, I'm just going to go over a few elements that I believe Euro games have. First off, player conflict. Player conflict is generally indirect in these games, so you're not like trying to beat each other up as such, you're just competing over resources or victory points, that kind of thing. So it's more a game of efficiency rather than a game of actual combat and battle. Combat does sometimes feature in Euro games, but it tends to be quite rare or it tends to be abstracted to the point where it doesn't really feel like combat. We're going back to study in Emerald that I mentioned a minute ago, and yes, you can assassinate other people's agents, but all you pretty much do is play cards and say that guy's dead. 
So that doesn't really feel like combat. That's a very abstract version of combat. Hence, I believe that is a Euro game characteristic. Another one is that players are never eliminated from the game. I can't think of a Euro game where somebody gets eliminated outright. When you play King of Tokyo, if your life goes down to zero, you're out and you're eliminated. So that's an Ameritrash game through and through. But Euro games, even if you're doing badly, you are never fully eliminated. All players are still playing when the game ends. Now, this isn't always a good thing for Euro games. In fact, in some cases, that can actually make the game worse because there are times where you could be losing so badly in a Euro game, but you're stuck. You have no choice but to wait it out and just get to the end, even though you know you have no chance of catching up. Sometimes that is a big pain when playing Euro games, and it is much better when they balance victory conditions so that you don't get that problem. Randomness and luck tend to not feature very much in Euro games, but again, that's not always necessarily the case. Luck and randomness is something that's going to happen in most games. There are not many games where you can just eliminate luck entirely. It's going to be prominent in some way. But in a Euro game, the idea is that any luck or randomness that you get is generally mitigated. So you have a way of reducing or making things, reducing the luck that there is or making it more probable that you're going to achieve what you set out to do. And so another example of this I'll give is Kingsburg and Alien Frontiers. Both of those games involve you rolling dice, and those dice dictate what you can do on the turn. Now, some people would argue that that makes it a hybrid or an Ameritrash game because you're rolling dice, and dice are inherently lucky. But in those games, it's not the dice that necessarily dictate exactly what you do. They just give you the options. You still have a choice of what to do after the random event has occurred rather than before. So like in Alien Frontiers, you've got various stations around this planet that you can put your dice on to do actions. Now, you might roll badly and you might not be able to do the ones that you want to do that turn, but you can still go, right, well, in that case, I'm going to go there, there and there and use what I've got. It's not that you rolled the dice and you literally could do nothing but that one move. Rarely does that happen anyway. But certainly, randomness and luck does not play a major part of the game. Now, one that I have seen that is kind of weird. I mean, that I, I, I've seen this on Board Game Geek. Some people reckon that Euro games are generally have the designer of the game listed on the game's box cover. I don't see that being a Euro trend. I mean, Ameritrash games have got that as well, and so have hybrid games. It's probably reported that... Uh, Eurogames started this trend, but personally, I don't find it that uncommon to see somebody just have their designer name on the box. So this one, I don't really feature in any Eurogame classification. If the designer's name on the box, it's on the box. I mean, surely the designer wants to get his name out there. So why wouldn't it be on the box? So I never really pay much attention to that. Artwork and components, those I do take into consideration with a Eurogame. Artwork and components are generally... Very, a lot of attention is given to those in a Euro game. That's not to say that Ameritrash don't have decent components. I mean, let's, I mean, let's face it, Fantasy Flight do pretty much nothing but Ameritrash games, and look at their components. You know, they really do nicely. But certainly the artwork is paid pretty well in a Euro game. I mean, if you play something like... Uh, let's take an example, maybe. Um, oh, I've got to think of one off the top of my head now. Well... Terra Mystica is probably a good one. I mean, you look at on the board of Terra Mystica and the artwork looks great on that one. You look at Alien Frontiers and that retro sci-fi board looks gorgeous. 
And even in certain hybrid games, I mean, let's take Chaos in the Old World, for example, uh, that has beautiful artwork across the board, that Euro element in there. But mainly what you do tend to find with Euro games is that the components wood, wood is a prominent feature because Euro games like to use resources. So metal, wood, stone, fire, water, whatever. And they like to use wood to represent them. You don't tend to see much plastic and metal in Euro games. But, you know, you take something like Terra Mystica, all the building pieces are wooden. You look at Caverna and Agricola, all the resource tokens are wooden. Stone Age, all the tokens are wooden. Wood just seems to feature a lot in Euro games. I don't know why, but, I mean, I like wood, personally. I prefer wood to plastic. I like having lots of chunky wooden tokens to play around. I mean, that's one thing that attracts me to a Euro game in general, the fact that I get to have all these cool wooden tokens here to manipulate. But... Certainly, it does seem more prominent in a Euro game than a Ameritrash game to have wooden bits. But one of the biggest things that does tend to feature with a Euro game definition is the theme. Now, I love theme. You know, I love theming games. The, my favorite games tend to be the ones with a decent theme. Doesn't mean that they're only Ameritrash games, but Euro games can have theme as well. But Eurogame themes tend to have very little to do with the gameplay. The focus is instead on the mechanics, and you find that the theme is relatively tacked on. So, I mean, let's take, for example, Lords of Waterdeep. Lords of Waterdeep is a great Eurogame, and it's based on the D&D universe. Now, it can be argued that the D&D universe theme in there is pretty light and very tacked on. And to be honest, it is. There is some elements of theme in there with the intrigue cards and the way that the quests are laid out. You know, if you do a quest that says free the fighters, you get a bunch of fighters. But pretty much you could replace that theme with anything else and it would still be the same. The game could be about space. You could be on a planet fighting over a spaceport and you need mercenaries to go out and do your job. And you are the ruler of this planet fighting against the other rulers of this planet. You know, you could pretty much replace it with anything you like. So the theme is usually there, but it doesn't make much difference. And some games are themeless. I mean, you look at some Euro games out there. I'm think of another example. I mean, Settlers of Catan does not have a major theme in it, but it's still a very entertaining Euro game. Paragrid claims to have a theme of going around and uh, setting up power stations and resource management and stuff like that. But personally, Paragrid just has no theme and it's as dry as a bone. But... And various other ones, uh, trying to think of that, Carcassonne generally doesn't have much of a theme. It's a very dry uh, game, still a good one, but it's, you know, the theme might as well be anything. It doesn't really make much difference. And I suppose that other ones, I mean, the biggest, I wouldn't say insults, but the ones who try to claim they have a theme and yet blatantly don't, they do get on my nerves a bit. And those ones tend to be the ones where they're based on historical areas or locations. Now... Recently, I mentioned in another podcast on my disappointment with Brussels, 1893 or whatever it was. And that was based on like art auctions and stuff like that. But to be honest, you might as well have called it Rome 24 BC or something for all it really mattered. You could have replaced that theme with any other location and any other date and it would still work. It just really made no difference that it was Brussels, 1893. Just make it Rome 24 AD, make it Timbuktu the 17th century, I don't know. It really just didn't make any difference whatsoever. So those are some very major characteristics for Euro games. We're talking very light theme. 
We're talking wooden components are common. We're talking uh, little randomness or luck. Players are never eliminated from the game. And player conflict is very indirect and doesn't revolve you direct, com you know, direct combat. It's mainly just an exercise of efficiency with quality artwork and components and a lot of strategy involved rather than tactics. That's not to say that some Euro games don't opt out of these characteristics, but they're the ones that I tend to focus on when deciding on mine. And, well, funny enough, we're about to get on to that now. That's what I think about the Eurogame definition. I'd be interested to see what everybody else thinks on this matter, so feel free to comment on the blog or on BoardGameGeek or just send me an email letting me know what your impressions are like. Or even better, when I put the top 10 list on BoardGameGeek as a geek list, I'd be interested to hear your definitions then. But speaking of top 10, let's get on to it. My top 10 Euro games. Okay, let's move on to top 10 Euro games. Now, remember, I've just been talking about the ways that I characterize a Euro game. Now, there are going to be some that you might have expected in this top 10 that aren't. It may be because I just don't like the game, it may be because I haven't played it, or it may be because it doesn't meet my definition of a Euro game. I'll mention some honorable mentions now, just for ones that you might have expected that aren't in there. Chaos in the Old World is a big honorable mention. Chaos in the Old World is a fantastic game, but I could not fit it within definitions of a Euro game, because the problem with defining it as a Euro game is that there is a lot of direct confrontation in that game. Combat is very common, in fact it's every turn, and it's just and it has a very strong theme. Now it's got partial Euro elements, it's got uh, cool components, it's got the artwork, it's got the strate strategic element, and it's playing, it's, well, you know, no one's eliminated from the game, that kind of thing, and there's not a huge amount of randomness in it apart from just the odd bit of combat rolls. So I would class Chaos in the Old World as a hybrid game, and that's why, spoiler alert, it's not going to make this list, despite me really liking it. Now, again, I would, I'll would be putting this up as a geek list, so I look forward to seeing what Euro games you put on there. I'm already expecting a few titles off the top of my head to appear in that list, but I will put up the top 10, and like I said, I will make public editions uh, listed on there so anybody can come on and list from 11 onwards their choices of what they would personally have as their favorite euro games so without further ado let's make a start it's another top 10 list euro games number 10 number 10 is a really old game in most games i mean well i say really old really old for me anyway to be honest the start in the millennium is pretty old for me I'm very much a modern-day type gamer, and I don't tend to focus on the really old stuff that often. But in terms of what people are used to playing these days, this has been around for ages. It's had a million expansions. I only have two major expansions for this game, but I would happily acquire some if I thought I was going to get this to the table more often, or if I thought it was easier to teach to other players. Because that's the problem. With more expansions, this game does get very crowded. But it's a very old classic, Carcassonne. Carcassonne was probably one of the first few Euro games I remember playing, and I have taught it successfully to my family, which, believe me, that is no small achievement, because my parents don't adjust the games very well. 
But Carcassonne is a great game. Z-Man, uh, I've got the recent print of this. I think someone else used to do it. And with Carcassonne, you are just pulling a tile out of a bag and laying them down to create this really nice-looking map where you've got cities and roads and farmyards everywhere. And you are placing your meeples on the, on the tiles to represent areas where you could score points for robbers on roads, knights in cities, that kind of thing. And the game just continues, and this lovely map just de basically develops over the course of the game. It's always unique because the tiles are randomized in this cool blue bag, and the expansions add a really cool element to the game. Now, it can be a little dry at times, and I wouldn't play this with too many players because you could be sat there for a while with AP prone lot, and too many expansions does make the game go on for a long time. But you get Carcassonne with the Traders and Builders expansion and the Inns and Cathedrals expansion, and I think that's the ideal setup. You can add other ones as well, but I think those two would set me right for a long time. So number 10, Carcassonne. Number 9. You will remember in my discussion for Euro game characteristics that I mentioned that dice can still feature in a Euro game. And this is one of the biggest examples that there is of dice appearing in the Euro game, and that's Kingsburg. Kingsburg is a great game where you are rolling dice and you have 18 advisors. You're, you're effectively the ruler of a district and you're building up your city to appease the king. And there are 18 advisors that you can go to for resources and other options as well. But they're numbered from 1 to 18, and the way that you hire a particular advisor is that you roll three dice, and depending on what you roll on the dice in terms of numbers, dictates where you have the choices of putting them. So let's, for example, you want to get the assassin to uh, help you out, then he is number 12, for example, and you roll three dice, and if you can make 12 with your dice, you place those dice on that advisor, and you get his ability for the term. Now, obviously, if you want the higher level advisors that give you more stuff, you're going to need either more dice or you're going to need bonuses from tokens and cities that you build, or you're just going to need to roll something high like a 17 or 18 and just use all three dice. You could split your dice however you like, and with the expansion to forge a realm, this game really comes into its own with multiple paths to victory, extra buildings that you can build, all with their own little bonuses, and you get some really nice quality dice. You can even buy the upgraded dice that are being sold, but that's only if you've got a lot of money to burn. I've got money to burn, but even I'm not that convinced to buy what four or five sets of those Kingsburg dice that are out at the moment. If they came down in price, maybe, but boy, they're costly at the moment. They do look cool, though, and I do recommend that if you've got the money to burn, why not go and get them, but just not for me. But aside from that, Kingsburg's is a great little game. You've got a little bit of competition because obviously if you hire an advisor, no one else can have it. So it's got that worker placement aspect. It's cool to roll some nice, chunky, quali good quality dice. And the expansion to Forge Your Realm is a must-buy for that game. I put that at number three, I think, was it? My number three in my top ten essential expansions list. Trust me, if you buy Kingsburg, you need to Forge Your Realm. It's very good for that game. So number nine, Kingsburg. Number 8. Number 8 is a recent game that I only got a chance to play earlier this year. It made my top 10 of 2013, I believe, and it's basically one of my biggest surprises for games. A game that has trains as a theme, even though the theme is relatively light in this game, but a game that involved trains in some manner or another and still impressed me. 
And obviously, um, I mean, Ticket to Ride is one of my favorite games, so I do consider, you know, that is one of the exceptions that involves trains and I like. But again, even that theme is pretty light. However, I don't necessarily class Ticket to Ride as a major Euro game, and it hasn't made this list, spoiler alert. But this one is Russian Railroads. Russian Railroads is a worker placement game where you are building up effectively the tracks. And pretty much everything in this game gives you points. Building a track gets you points. Building some industry gets you points. Putting a worker there gets you points. Getting this bonus gets you points. Going last in the turn gets you points. You know, jumping up and down on the table while singing the do wa di 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 dum di di do or something gets you points. It really is a point salad in every definition of the word. And, but it just works really well. It's balanced. The different paths to victory all, they, they make sense, but they also are fairly balanced. There's some tight competition with the spaces. However, you're not entirely screwed if someone takes your space because what tends to happen is that you can have the space for cheap, i.e. you don't need many workers, or if someone is already taking that spot, you can still do that action, but you're going to need to place more workers out. So you have to constantly think which is more important on my turn that I need to get done that I can afford to have the workers spare for. It works really well. It, the components are not bad. I mean, you know, you get a, a few wooden pieces. Mainly it's just the, the boards, and the boards are pretty good quality as well. So, you know, component-wise, the, the components are a, a side thing for Russian railroads. It mainly comes down to the great level of strategy, multiple paths to victory, and just generally a good fun worker placement game, and, it's, and it involves trains. I mean, shock horror. So, number eight, Russian railroads. Number seven. Number seven is a game that also made my top 10 of 2013 list. I would probably say that 2013 was quite a good year for a couple of Euro games, in my opinion. But number seven is a civilization game. It's based on, well, not based on, it's essentially a streamlined version of Through the Ages that came out a few years earlier. And But this one tends to make it more streamlined. It makes it easier to get into, but it still gives you that, still, that, that same flavor of building up your civilization from starting to modern world by acquiring cards that allow you to develop your civilization how you see fit. You've got unique setups, so asymmetrical setups for the civilizations, and you've also got some element of war and conflict, but not so much that you have to invest in war, otherwise you get screwed. That's Nations. Nations, it's a bit expensive to buy, I must admit, the price point is a bit high, but it is due to get some expansions. I believe they're coming out with some dice game version of this, almost a bit like Roll Through the Ages. It does seem like a massive copycat exercise, but oh well, that's another story. But Nations for me, just you've got so many choices to make in that game. Every action you take, you're thinking, should I do this? Should I do that? You know, should I get should I get some more food? Am I about to run out of stone? I need stone to keep these workers going. Um, is there a card in those rows that I need? Ooh, something to start a war. Do I need to get some more military? Should I hire some more centurions? Oh, my centurions even good enough? Maybe I should hire a couple of galleys. Maybe that would be better for military. There's just so much choices you've got to make. And yet, only if you're really stuck for AP-prone players, the game is a long one. Yes, it's a long one because you can go through multiple ages, but you can shorten the game simply by reducing it by an age. You know, that's not difficult and it doesn't unbalance the game. But because you take your turns by actions rather than do your entire turn, the downtime isn't that long in this. So it had to make my shelf. It's a great civilization game and I would prefer this to Through the Ages any day 
mainly just because it's shorter, more streamlined, and isn't quite, and even even though the artwork's not fantastic, it still looks better and more colorful than Through the Ages ever did, let's face it. You know, Through the Ages is a fairly cool game, but it is just basically a bunch of tracks with some cubes on it. Woo. You know, hardly hardly the basis for a visual looking, a visual appealing game anyway. So number seven, Nations. Number six. Number six, well, if you are in the board gaming world, chances are you have heard of this game. It's famous enough for the fact that it's made usually like the number two spot or number three spot on most top ten of all time lists. It's been the people's choice number two, number three, number four, you know, that sort of area for the last few years in the Dice Tower. And it's still one of the best games on Board Game Geek in terms of its ranking. In this case, I'm talking about Seven Wonders. Seven Wonders is a Euro game. There is not much in the way of direct confrontation in it because you are effectively card drafting with the players next to you, even though some future expansions might be sorting that problem out. But you are card drafting and building up your civilization, deciding whether you want to go down the scientific route, the military route, that kind of thing. And you've got, with the expansions, you've got leaders who you can hire to influence the tactic you're going for and as you're card drafting you're thinking right well i need this but hang on a minute the player next to me is going to want this should i take this to stop him or should i further my own agenda it plays really fast even with multiple players it's fairly simple to get into although i do stress you have to be used to iconography in order to get used to this game because the mechanic itself card drafting is very simple but trying to recognize what every icon does and how the buildings chain up can be a little daunting for new players, but you get the base game of Seven Wonders, you should be able to teach this relatively easily, and it's still a good amount of fun. I've got several mates who I play this with on a regular basis, mainly because it's one of the few games I've got that they were able to pick up and understand, and I'm not going to complain, it's one of my favourite Euros. So, six, Seven Wonders. Number five. Number five is a game similar to Kingsburg, so we're going back to the dice-throwing mechanic again. Now the reason this one ups Kingsburg though is mainly because the theme is a little stronger in this one. The component wise I do really like the retro sci-fi feel of this game and the new edition that has just come out, the fourth edition, has also upped the component quality as well. But you've also got a really cool feature with the expansion of this game that you can be your own, your own faction and it allows you to have your own special ability and also a special action that other players can take if they come visit you and pay you the resources. But I prefer this one to Kingsburg, and this one is Alien Frontiers. It's a similar style mechanic. Roll the dice, and depending what you roll, dictates where you can go. But you're not hiring advisors. This time you're docking at space stations that allow you to get fuel or uh, place colonies. But... In Kingsburg, you are pretty much just hiring the advisors and building the city up, so that's mainly the gist of the game. With Alien Frontiers, not only are you doing the building up resources and placing the dice out, but you're fending for area control on this planet, and the different territories give you special abilities if you control them. The game is very tight. Victory points are going back and forth constantly when you're basically vying for control of a particular territory that you like. With the AP proneness is not bad in this game, although when you've got a lot of dice, it can have an effect. But as a three-player game, four, four players max, I recommend with this. But three players is beautiful with this game. It's great fun, plays fairly quickly, 
and it always gets an eye from people when they see all these lovely colored dice all over the place on this retro sci-fi board. So number five, Alien Frontiers. Check it out if you haven't played. Number four. Number four, this game has a fairly light tacked on theme, so we're going back to that definition of a Euro game, but it's a worker placement. It's still great fun. It's probably one of the gateway Euros, I would think, because it's not that difficult to play, but there's still a lot of decisions you can make, and I suppose the D&D theme does grab people initially. Of course, when I say D&D, you know that I'm talking about Lords of Waterdeep. This game is just great fun when it comes to the worker placement genre you know i mean yes the theme is relatively tacked on but it still makes sense you know the quests make sense you know free the fighters get a bunch of fighters that kind of thing there's a good amount of strategy in the game where your main premise is dictated by your lord card i do recommend though that when you play this game you dish out two lords to everyone and they pick the one that they like i think if you just deal around one lord then it tends to fix what they do and it's not as much fun that way. I think giving them a choice when the game starts of what lord they want is a much better idea. But it looks gorgeous. The iOS version of this game is beautiful and works really well. It's one of my main played games on the iOS. And against multi you can play this fairly quickly, even with a maximum amount of players. It's not that bad in terms of time length. But you could play it with less players and it's still a good balanced game. Add Scandals of Skullport on here, and you have a winner when it comes to worker placement games. It's really good. The, the corruption mechanic is, again, adds to the theme, but also gives you something else to think about where you could gain more resources, but at the expense of having negative points later if you don't repent for your corruption. So, number four, Lords of Waterdeep. Number three. Number three is responsible for knocking another one off this top ten. If this game did not exist, this game would probably be taking its spot. Because much as I like the original game, this one surpasses it. It streamlines it better, it gets rid of a couple of things in the base game I didn't like. And even though you lose one aspect of the base game that I was quite a fan of, it still has something else to replace it. In this case, I'm talking about Caverner the Cave Farmers. Caverna is the Agricola 2.0, I like to call it. It's still the same premise, you know, you're trying to build up farmland, but in this case you're also building up a cave with furnished rooms that give you special bonuses depending which ones you build. You've got to cut down the forest and build up your farmland and pastures, but then you've also got to excavate the cave and build the rooms in them, or mines even, where you can get little donkeys to man the mines and get ore and gems, that kind of thing. And you can even equip your dwarfs with weapons and they can go off and do little adventuring quests that get you more resources as well. Agricola is still a great game. If somebody offered me to play Agricola with them, I would happily play it. I still think it's a great game. But I never liked the fact that you had to balance your farm out regardless of what strategy you did. And I didn't like the fact that workers were so important in that game that you had to get them as a mandatory thing. Also, I didn't like the fact that you got caps on certain things that you went for like you know if you've got four vegetables you got this many points if you had five you still got the same route as you had with four there was a cap and you got negative points for having none of a particular item so you were forced to balance the farm out that got on my nerves too much to put agricola ahead of caverna 
Governor comes in and says, right, okay, yes, you will get negative points for not having any animals, but other than that, you will get no cap limit on all the other stuff you do. So if I want to be a wheat farmer, I can be a wheat farmer. If I want to focus entirely on mining, I can do that. I don't have to balance my farm out to a stupid extent just to survive the game. Now, feeding your people is still prominent in this game, but it's no longer as the focal point. That was another flaw of Agricola. Feeding, you know, the game might as well not be about farming. It might as well just be called feed your people because feeding your people was such a major issue in that game that you had to deal with it as your primary initiative. Whereas in Converner, it's still there. You still have to feed your people. But depending on your strategy, you're no longer like, oh, my God, I can't physically do this. So Caverner, I'm afraid, has sacked Agricola from the top 10 list. I still have Agricola in my collection, although how much longer for? Remains to be seen. There is a bringing buy sale at the UK Games Expo. Maybe you'll find my copy of Agricola there. So that's number three, Caverner, the cave farmers. Number two. Number two, this is going to be a shock to some and not a shock to others. I have been praising this game on multiple lists for its ability to tick all the boxes. The fact that it's cheap to buy, easy to play, easy to teach, has good strategic depth, has good tactical depth, has good artwork, has good components, is small, it's fairly portable, it doesn't require a lot of setup, it's got a lot of boxes that it ticks, but it doesn't make my number one Euro game. There is one Euro game that beats this, but my number two is Spirium. Spirium was one of my favorite games from 2013, and I still think it's one of the better Euro games out there, just for, the, like I said, all those things just mentioned. But Spirium is a great little worker placement game where you have a market of nine cards that have various either uh, personnel with special abilities, uh, buildings that you can buy and construct, and patents that give you bonuses at the end of the game. But the unique thing with this is that you place your workers in between the cards and depending on how many meeples surround a particular card determines how expensive the card is to buy or for the advisor to use. And you can instead also take your meeples off the board in order to gain money, again, based on how many meeples surround the card. It's a very cool, almost sort of an innovative market mechanic for worker placement because now your workers have two possibilities rather than just the one. And sometimes you might be going after a particular card and eventually you might have to pull out and or wait wait longer in order to get the card for cheap. But then how long do you wait before someone else decides that they're willing to spend the extra? And sometimes you might go to a card that you have no interest in. You just know that everybody else is interested in it and then you use it as a money maker. So the whole supply and demand aspect in this game is represented very well for a euro which isn't meant to have much of a, in the way of theme. But... I've, I've, I mean, I've said this on multiple other lists, so I'm not going to go on about this game much any, anymore on this list. Spirium is my number two. Seriously, go and check it out. But what beat it? And finally, number one. Number one. This game did not come out in 2013, so you can explain why that hasn't featured on my top ten of 2013. But it came out fairly recently, though it's still a recent game. This game... The theme could be anything. I mean, it's got a fantasy-style theme, but again, it's pretty light. It's fairly tacked on. But the amount of options in this game, coupled with just how intuitive it is, how much there is to do in this game, the variety in the races you can be, there is so many, so much variety in this game. 
it works so well, it works smoothly, it's reasonably streamlined, even though there's a lot of options to do, and it's not terribly complex. You just have to think about what you're doing. And, well, without further ado, this is it. Terra Mystica. Terra Mystica, I was stunned when I played this game. I wasn't sure what to make of it. People were sort of praising it like no end, and I wasn't sure whether I would like it because I thought, hmm, relatively tacked on theme, but it has got fantasy races. It sounds quite complex. Let's give it a go. Play free player game, and I loved it. I started off with the Darklings on my first game, and I just had so much fun sacrificing priests for constructing my areas and buildings. And I went for the cult track as a major factor in it, you know, building up your what's it the well the, the cult levels and the four different elements for bonus points and special abilities and it just oh it flowed so well i really enjoyed it and other games i've played of it i've tried other races and they feel very different even though the changes are relatively minor just having that different special ability and maybe some differences in the costs of your buildings and what abilities you get from your main stronghold they really do change how you play the game and there's so many races that it's going to take ages before I've played them all. And I really want to get this to the table more often. It's not easy to get to the table because it is a long one. And if you're teaching a new player, it can be quite daunting. But if you know what you're doing and you've played with players who know what they're doing, then this is an absolute blast. I really love this game. It's certainly one of my favorite games. This would easily make my top 20 list, uh, possibly even my top 10. Who knows? But I really want to get this game to the table again. So I maybe maybe I could get it tomorrow at Southampton on board. I'm not sure. If not, maybe I'll get a chance to play it at the UK Games Expo. But I really can't wait to play this game again. It's great fun. Great Euro. Not so much in the way of theme, but it just works. It works. Great strategic depth. Great tactical change. Love it. Terra Mystica, number one. Okay, and that's my top 10 Euro games. Do you agree with my top 10? Do you want to add some more to the list? Feel free. Add some more to the geek list when I put it up eventually in the next week or so. Obviously, I prefer that you listen to the podcast and hear my discussions on it, but if you're involved with the geek list, at least you know that you're getting involved. But do you also agree with my definitions on the Euro game? Do you have your own definitions that I've missed out or that you think define a Euro game? Do you think that some on my list don't even classify as a Euro game? I have seen debate on Seven Wonders and possibly even Carcassonne. Well, not Carcassonne. I suppose Carcassonne is pretty easy to define as a Euro. But Alien Frontiers and Kingsburg, you know, do you define them as a Euro game? So I'll be interested to hear your feedback on that. Now, what's going to happen with the blog? It's going to carry on as normal in terms of the YouTube channel and reviews. But... The podcast will probably be a slight delay before episode 19 because in two weeks' time there is the UK Games Expo, which I will be attending for all three days. I will be posting up Twitter updates, I'll be taking photos, I'll be doing, you know, posting them up on the blog as a sort of collection of photos rather than a giant write-up. And I'm looking forward to the expo. I hope to see a lot of people there who are following this podcast and my blog, or even just those I've spoken to on Twitter, the blogs that I follow. Even the people who run game stores that I purchase games from, it's going to be a big revelation in terms of board gaming, and I cannot wait. 
but it also clashes with when I would expect to do my next podcast. So you can expect episode 19 to come sometime in June, possibly the first weekend of June, possibly the second. So it'll be a little bit of time before episode 19, but I will devote it to focusing mainly on the UK Games Expo itself. So it will be a special episode, much like the tabletop gaming one that I did before. Cannot wait for it. And well, I hope to see a lot of you guys there. So if you're going and you want to meet up for a game or just to chat, then feel free. I will probably be wandering around in a shirt with my blog logo on it, which reminds me I should probably get onto Vistaprint and get that printed. But, you know, it's it's cheap advertising. Why not? And it gets the logo, it gets the message across, and I'm not the only one who's going to be doing it. So to you, if you don't agree with it. But that's it for me now. That's episode 18, the Euro edition out of the way. I am sweating buckets here at the moment because I am stuck in my lounge room with the window shut to cut the noise out. And it's a hot day today in Portsmouth. So I'm going to get out and enjoy some of that sun. I think I should, uh, I'm thinking I'll cycle down to the seafront, lie on the beach and just relax with and get started on my Lord of the Rings audiobook actually, because I've just acquired that and I haven't even started it yet. So I should really get going with it. As for new games that I hope to be reviewing soon, Alien Frontiers will make the list. So will Seasons. Hanabi is another one. And I'll also get on to the recent expansion for Sentinels of the Multiverse, Vengeance. In terms of new games that are going to make my collection, there is, I'm expecting in the post, the Forsaken Law expansion to Eldritch Horror. Maybe I'll get a chance to review that in the near future. And the Lord of the Rings LCG core set. I've been debating whether to get this game for a while, and I do like the LCG model. I really love Netrunner. Lord of the Rings is a cool genre anyway, and I like the idea that this can be played as a solitaire game or as a two-player co-op. So I'll be giving my views on that at some point, but probably not for a little while yet because it's going to take me a while to get into the game and see how it goes. So that's it for me. I'm going to get going. So thank you for listening to episode 18 of The Broken Meeple. Take care, enjoy gaming, and I'll speak to you on the next episode, or even better, at the UK Games Expo. I hope to see you there. You've been listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast, a show devoted to board and card games on behalf of you, the gamers that play them. You can find the Broken Meeple on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. My Twitter feed is at thebrokenmeeple, Facebook, just search for The Broken Meeple. Same goes for Google+. You can also find me on BoardGameGeek under the pseudonym of Farmer Giles. If you wish to meet me face-to-face, you can find me at several board gaming clubs in the local region. The Titanic Pub hosts the Southampton On Board Gaming Club on Monday evenings at 7 o'clock. The Portsmouth On Board meets up fortnightly at the British Legion in Portsmouth. Search for us on meetup.com for more information. And Chichester Board Game Club can be found on Facebook. Just search for TCGS or search for the Chichester Board Gaming Society. I'm Luke Hector, signing off now. Take care, enjoy playing games, and I'll see you soon.